6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Song of Songs, entitled, The Allegorical Views. As the living Father hath sent me, I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna, and are dead. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. So let's go back to this strange thing in Proverbs 30. There's more to it here. This next couple of verses are really messed up. The way it's in your English, Surely I am more brutish than any man and have not the understanding of a man. I have learned wisdom. I have neither learned wisdom nor have the knowledge of the holy. Well, the word brutish there actually just means natural. Any man really refers to mankind. I'm as natural as mankind. And have not the understanding of Adam. Now, he's far more than that. The next verse is even worse, it says. Says I neither I have neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the holy. The, the negative is not in the Hebrew. That was added by the translators because they couldn't figure it out any other way. There is no negative in the Hebrew in that sentence. What it really says is I was not taught wisdom, and I have knowledge of the holies. See the whole the whole flavor of this is just the opposite is you, the impression you get in the English. But let's go on. He then makes a number of statements. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? That's a quote from Hosea 5.15. Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? That's a, virtually a quote from Psalm 135 verse 7. Who hath bound the waters in a garment? That's a quote from Psalm 104. This is obviously God is the answer to these questions. Who hath established all the ends of the earth? Psalm 72.8 uses that very phrase. And what is his name? at this. And what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? That's not only the Old Testament. It was used by Jesus to confuse his his, uh, antagonists. This is Psalm 110, the first verse. You may recall in Matthew 22, I love this passage, the the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Pharisees all had their crack at him. But while they were together, Jesus asked them, he asked them a question, saying, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They said unto him, the son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit down at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Wow. When you're dealing with lawyers, you better have your homework done. And boy, he sure did. He he gave them a question they could not answer. He's just quoting Psalm 110. He says, then, if David call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able, I love this, no man was able to answer him for a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. He really put him to confusion. Here's what's interesting when you study the Hebrew. If you take that phrase in Psalm 110 and look at it in the Hebrew, the word there for Lord, Adonai, has a little yot after it. That little yot after it makes it possessive 
how can David call him Lord, my Lord, if he is his son? And they couldn't unravel that. His whole argument with which he confused the legalists of that time was to leans on a little thing that, a yod, that you and I would mistake for a blemish on the paper. Remember Jesus said in, in, all the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, he said, think not that I come to destroy the law of the prophets, I come not to destroy it, but to fulfill. For verily I send you, till heaven and earth pass, one yacht or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now a yacht or a tittle are Hebraisms. A yacht is that little thing that you and I think would look, it looks like an apostrophe. A tittle is a little hook on some of the letters. This is, a, this is a Hebrew way of saying, not the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T shall pass until all be fulfilled. This is an important verse because to me it, call, it, it defines our hermeneutical challenge. To take the text literally. Not, not just every verse, every word, every letter, even the parts of the letter have relevance. And Jesus uses that to make his point. So let's, because Jesus, in, let's continue Proverbs 3, just to finish it up here. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Then there's another insight, then we'll finish it up here. Two things have I required of thee, deny me not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. This is an important clue to realize that the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, has nothing to do with vocabulary. It has to do with ambassadorship. You're representing the king, and you better be prepared to represent him competently and faithfully. And that's, anyway, moving on here. So, okay, we've gone through in our previous three sessions the literal. Let's just take a few other highlights in the microcosm. We can look at the allegorical views in the macro sense, in the overview sense. And clearly, the whole story of the opera with the shepherd king coming for his bride and celebrating all that is pretty clear in the aggregate, in the macro sense of being parallel to the church and Christ, also the believer in Christ and so forth. But let's go back and pick up micro allusions, micro, uh, 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 small, uh, uh, insightful examples. And remember, we had the we have these five idols and thirteen reflections. We're going to draw from. Remember, in chapter one, we shall make thee borders, braids of gold, with studs of silver. Solomon speaking. But I want you to notice the plural. When you start looking at this more carefully, you begin to sense it isn't a single guy, it's the Trinity speaking here. Notice the plural. Later on it says, while the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard sendeth forth the smell thereof. We begin to sense all through the passages the reliance on fragrances. We are reminded that just how believers like the bride of Jesus Christ should be sweet smell in his nostrils. That's the New Testament. Labels in 2 Corinthians 2, Ephesians 5, Philippians 4, uses those same expressions. We are to be a desirable fragrance to him. And uh, then we have, like in, in uh, chapter 4, thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. He always sees her as without defect and uh, totally satisfied with his bride. And uh, many make the point that that's maybe the key message in the book. Is that one of the primary purposes of this book 
is to show you how your shepherd king sees you. Sees you because he can impute to you his righteousness. Ooh. In chapter 5, I opened my beloved, my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My, fo- my soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Boy, this, this, God, for his reasons, will appear to be absent and striving. This is uh, Jean Goyen, famous, used this passage to comment on the dark night of the soul, what she's so famous for writing about. And she was imprisoned in the Bastille for her commentary on the Song of Songs. And uh, that was picked up by my bride, Nan, who took the leading part in her book called The Faith in the Night Seasons as we went through our dark night of the soul. We also encounter acrostic, by the way, just to bring us another microcosm, microcode, if you will. In chapter 6, verse 3, the Hebrew reads like this, and it turns out that the first letter of the first letter of the first four words make an acrostic on Elul, which is the sixth Jewish month corresponding to what we call August September. It's the month of preparation for the fall feasts. And if you remember, the seven feasts of, of Moses are all not only commemorative historically, they're prophetic. Uh, have prophetic significance. And here's the, 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 to prepare for the fall feasts, the big ones, if you will, we have the month of preparation. Just as you and I are in a period of preparation in terms of the second coming, the parallel there is very, very clear and can be elaborated on. The Jews' catechism is a calendar. You really do well to understand the agricultural calendar, but especially the feast, the seven feasts of Moses. I, I won't take the time here because we do all of this as we go here. And so, in chapter 8, verse 5, uh, Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I raised thee up under the apple tree. There thy mother brought thee forth, and there she brought thee forth that bare thee. This question is, 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 is uh, uh, always in reference to the Shulamite. And coming to the apple tree was where she first won love, and that's where they renewed their love commitment, if you will. Cometh up from the wilderness. Okay, what does the wilderness mean allegorically is a question we should ask ourselves. It suggests that they left Jerusalem by the Jericho Road, came up the Jordan Valley, left the wilderness by coming through the Bet Shan Pass to Shunem. That would be the same route that she took when they were going on the wedding thing. But um, the wilderness, or desert, always has two symbolic associations in the Old Testament. The first, the wilderness was associated with Israel's 40-year period of trial. Okay. Well, in their love, the couple had overcome trials that threatened the relationship. That's the parallel. It's, that's the, that's the, that gives the occasion of the illusion here. And that has to do with the security of the beloved, the foxes they had to deal with, and the indifference threat that came along. But it has two, the other of the two symbols, symbolisms of the wilderness is that it's used as an image of God's curse, Jeremiah 22 and Joel 2. The couples coming up out of the wilderness suggest in a certain sense they'd overcome the curse of disharmony pronounced on Adam and Eve. And we're going to explore some of that in the last session when we take a look at Adam and Eve as a type of the marriage and so on. And uh, the other interesting thing occurs in chapter 8, verse 6. Set, set me as a seal on thy heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death and jealousy as cruel as the grave. Boy, that sounds strange language, doesn't it? as the goals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. That vehement flame literally is the fire flame of Yorivave, of God himself. 
the only place that God appears in the song here. It's in effect the name of God. And, uh, but the energy of this love is compared to the energy of death. In other words, powerful. Shoal, shoal in the sense that it's irresistible is the thought behind that. It sounds grim to us, but it's a way of saying irresistible. Okay. The jealousy of love is hard, cruel, firm as shoal. Simply asserting the right of possession of ownership. Just as shoal takes the full possession of the dead. That is the, the, uh, um, the uh, Solomon's claim on her is the flavor. Iron, bulletproof, so to speak. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet. Now this is one that really gets to me because the thread of scarlet is a theme. When you have this huge tapestry of the Bible, you'll discover certain threads are, are, occur all consistently through it. The thread of scarlet. And we're gonna, this is an allusion to Rahab's salvation. We'll take a look at that in a second. The scarlet thread from Genesis 3, 15, when, when God announces that there's going to be a redeemer. And that redeemer shows up with his vesture dipped in blood in Revelation 19. So these are threads in the tapestry that all tie together. Let me show you some surprising ways. I want to just add this to our agenda here. When I see blood, I'll pass over you, God says to Israel in Exodus 12. It is the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, that cleanses from all sin, John tells us in his first epistle. When you go to Joshua chapter 2, you have the story of Rahab receiving these two spies. And she says, Then she let them down by a cord through the window, for her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. So you all remember the story. And we know that cord was a, a, star, a scarlet cord. We'll find that out in a minute here. Okay. When she speaks of the cord, she uses a Hebrew word called hebel, which means a rope or a cord, of course. It also can be used to mean pain, sorrow, travail. It's a pun in a sense. It can be used as a pun in a sense, okay? A few verses later, the spies say, okay, great. If that's the case, behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window, which thou didst let us down by, and thou shalt bring thy father, thy mother, and thy brethren, and all thy father's household home, and they'll get protection, is what, and we'll know your place because of the scarlet cord. Cool. When they make reference to this line of scarlet thread, they don't use the word hebel that she used. They select a different word that can also mean cord. The word they select is tikva, which can mean line or cord, obviously. But tikva also can mean hope or expectation. In fact, the national anthem of the nation Israel is ha tikva, tikva. ha tikva is the, is the national anthem, the hope. Okay, so we've got two words referring to the same thing. One is pain, sorrow, so forth. The other one, hope, expectation. Now, you may recall that Paul defines the gospel in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 4. I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. And then he goes on and says, How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And one of our challenges is where in the Old Testament does it say that Christ will rise on the third day? It actually turns out there's four different places. One of them is where we're looking at here. Because these are, where is the gospel um, in the scripture? Between the Hebel and the Tikvah lies verse 16. Between those two verses, she said unto them, Get you to the mountain. 
lest the pursuers meet you and, you, and hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers be returned. Afterward, may you go your way. In other words, don't go home directly. Go into hide the mountains until the search is over and then go home. So hide there for three days. It could have been five days, two days. Why three? Why did, why did Rahab pick? She may not have known. Or there may be some reason we're not aware of that she picked three days. Let me tell you one that this three days is kind of interesting. Because we have hebel, which can mean pain, sorrow, or travail. Tikva means hope or expectation. And they're separated by three days, right? Okay, in the text. Well, what else was separating pain, sorrow, and travail? Hope, expectation, three days. The cross was three days before the empty tomb. Between Golgotha and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I just find that that, that, that that either grabs you or doesn't. I, it blows me away. It's one of those subtleties, little, little treasures hidden in the nooks and crannies of, of the t- biblical text. So let's just wrap it up and get to, for this session here. Let's t- speak of our life. Is, our plants are an orchard of pomegranates. That word speaks of orchard or paradise. See, we too, as believers, are pictured as a watered garden. Isaiah 58, Jeremiah 31, Old Testament things. And he has set us apart for himself, he says in Psalm 4. We are to be a source of fragrance and a source of fruit. He is a diligent husbandman in Philippians 1 and Galatians 5. We are not merely to have the assurance of our own salvation. We are to be as a watered garden for him. That's exactly the way Solomon describes himself at the peak of his consummation in chapter 4, verse 16. And that's exactly the parallel that we're looking for here. Four times he declared her fair without spot. Earlier she had declared her wretchedness. Aren't we wretched? And how? Don't we take our places aside Job, adhoring ourselves, repenting in dust and ashes? I should hope so. Don't we kneel beside Isaiah and exclaim, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips? Isaiah 6. Shouldn't we join Peter when he says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord, in Luke 5. That describes our actual wretchedness. Yet he has washed us, imputed to his his comeliness, our shepherd king, doesn't say to us, I love you but, or I love you if, or I love you when, no conditions. Never once does he say, you're lovely, but maybe you should change your hairstyle. You're lovely, but you can lose a few pounds. He says, I love you, period. That's the message of the gospel. We're, our life should be his garden. And just like that, some yield their, in a garden, some yield their fragrances, rain and dew fall on them. Some send, send forth a subtle aroma when the rays of the sun warms them. Others never exude until they're pierced and sap flows forth. It takes both the north and the south wind to bear the best fruit. It takes both the cold of winter as well as the warmth of summer. The best apples come from northern climates because it takes the cold to bring out the flavor. These idioms were used that way in the song. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Gardens are watered with what? Living water aren't they? And we have the parable of the two seas. There are two seas fed by the same source. One is a symbol of life. The other is a symbol of death. 
One is the Galilee. The snows Hermon and the, the Galilee is a idiom of life and orchard and fruit-bearing uh, uh, things. But that same water goes down to the Dead Sea where it dead ends. In the, in the Galilee, it enriches and moves on. It enriches by flowing on. In the Dead Sea, it receives and receives and receives and receives, period. And it's a symbol of death. We're like one of those two seas. Do you collect notes and things that line your library? Or does it flow on to disciple others? Are you a source of life? Or do you just receive and receive and receive is the question. One's a symbol of life. One's a symbol of death. Is your life touching others is the question. If not, what's hindering the outflow of the living water? Pray about that. Remember the letter that our shepherd king wrote, he himself wrote, to the church at Ephesus who had lost their first love. Have you lost your first love? What's his advice if you have? Remember, therefore, if one once thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come and unto thee quickly and will remove thy left hand out of his place, except thou repent. Oh, boy. That was the letter to the Ephesus church. The seven letters. He wrote seven letters to seven churches that represent all churches, every one of us, in some degree or another. You want to study the seven letters. Those seven letters are the completion of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the incomplete, incomplete book. Then in his final letter, final one of the seven, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. That was written, of course, to the Laodicean church. That was the church that was dead. That was the church that was, he's outside trying to get in. Have you responded to him is the question. Or are you, like many of us maybe, guilty of lethargy? You knew it once, but you lost it. Hey, remember the first works. There are many things in the Bible that I can make conjectures on. and I may not know, but I imagine. There's the thing that I cannot imagine. Everybody asks me. I cannot imagine, even speculate, on what will be the astonishment of those who never understood when the bride is snatched away, called the harpazo. What's it going to be like? I have I find incapable of imagining what the world will be like on the world after the Herpazzo. When the church is gone, the heavenly procession is passed them by. What will be their thoughts then? I have no idea. But there are some broader perceptions I want to deal in our final session next time. What does the marriage of Adam and Eve signify? Is Adam a type of Christ? In some, if Christ is the last Adam, Adam must be, in some sense, an anticipation, an anticipation of that. What of Eliezer when he seeks the bright for Isaac in Genesis 24? Why does he take along ten camels? I think that's, if everything's relevant, that must have relevance. If What mystery does Asenath, the Gentile bride of Joseph in Egypt, speak? And what do Boaz and Ruth really signify? A little four-chapter book is probably the most precious little book in the Bible. And what of Hosea purchasing his bride in the slave market? What's all that signify? And why are Jewish weddings always on a Tuesday? There's a reason. And what does Paul emphasize in Ephesians 5? 
That is our little gem of a marriage manual tucked away in the letter to Ephesus. So in our next session, we're going to remember that the volume of the book is written of me, Jesus says. We're going to broaden our perspective from, we've been looking at just the Song of Songs, which is our intent here in the study, but we're going to take one session, step back, and look at the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible. How does God use the marriage as his mechanism to model what he aspires to in terms of intimacy? So marriage is God's model for intimacy is our session for the final session. We'll talk about Adam and Eve. We'll talk about Eliezer and his gathering the bride for Isaac. We'll talk about Ruth and Boaz and some of the lessons there. We'll talk about Israel as the wife of Yotevave. All through the Old Testament, let's take a look at what that means. She's a harlot. You've got to be kidding. She was widowed. What does that mean? And of course, we'll conclude by exploring a little bit of what do we mean by the bride of Christ in the eschatological sense. And with that, um, I want to give you one little clue. There are Gentile brides in the Bible. Adam and Eve, she was Gentile because it was before Abraham. Isaac, Rebekah, Joseph, Asenath, Moses, Zipporah. Salmon was the the husband of, of Rahab. Boaz and Ruth. And Christ and the church. What do all these Gentiles, the brides are very diverse, their backgrounds. What do they have in common? None of them have their death recorded. Is that significant? We'll talk about it next time. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this precious book. We thank you, Father, for this time together. And we do, through your Holy Spirit, seek your truth, your wisdom regarding our marriages, and perhaps even more important, our personal walk with you. Help us to understand, Father, as we commit ourselves without any reservation whatsoever, commit ourselves into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our shepherd king, our coming bridegroom, indeed, Maranatha. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Song of Songs. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.